Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. The 2014 FIFA World Cup is now history, with Germany having become the first European team to win a tournament hosted in Latin America. And fittingly, we have two German scholars on the podcast this week to talk about the history of the World Cup with a bit of commentary on this year's tournament in Brazil and the German triumph. Stefan Rinke is a professor of Latin American history at the Free University in Berlin and the author of a number of works on soccer in Latin America. And Kai Schiller is reader in modern European history at the University of Durham. He's the co-author of an award-winning history of the 1972 Munich Olympics and author of a recent book on the 1974 World Cup. Together, they are editors of a volume of essays covering the history of the tournament, titled The FIFA World Cup, 1930-2010, to 2010, Politics, Commerce, Spectacle, and Identities. This is the best kind of edited volume. It offers a broad selection of essays written by experts in the history of each of the host countries, and these essays both give an in-depth and often revealing look at each of the tournaments, and they link together well with the other pieces in the book. So if you are looking for a single volume on the history of the World Cup, whether for a class you're teaching or for your own shelf of sports books, I recommend this book, edited by Kai and Stefan. Here's my interview with them. This week's guests on New Books and Sports are Kai Schiller. Kai, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. And speaking to us from Berlin is uh, Stefan Rinka. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bruce. Nice to be here. So we start the episode by getting a bit of introduction about uh, each of our guests, and I'll begin with uh, with Kai, who was a guest on the podcast a few years ago to talk about his book on the 1972 Munich Olympics. And uh, at that time, Kai, you were you were in the midst of research on your book about the 1974 World Cup. And so I'll ask you to start what led you, uh, knowing that your early, early research was on uh, intellectual history, on, on, on refugee scholars. So, so what led you from that to studying, uh, studying the World Cup of your youth? Uh, I think probably the love for football in, in the first place, and then probably also since that if you want to have an audience, you better pick a topic that is a bit more popular. And football is obviously very, very popular. And sports in general is a topic that has perhaps more more relevance or more interest at least among um, students and uh, the, the, the wider public than say 20th century intellectual history. It's not to say that I'm no longer interested in 20th century intellectual history, but it's just a different cup of tea, a cup of tea that is perhaps also a bit more, a bit closer to my own sort of loves and interests. So, so that's how I moved into sports history. 
And Stefan, I'll turn to you. Uh, you've published books and articles on a wide range of topics in uh, Latin American history, from the colonial period and the revolutions to contemporary cultural history. Uh, you focused on a number of, of uh, nations in the region. And uh, so I'll ask you, what led you to your interest in Latin American history in general and in Latin American football? Well, my interest in Latin American history uh, stems from my general interest in history. Uh, when already when I was a small boy, I got hooked by by history, and then later on, when I when I started studying, I found out that studying history in Germany, like in so many other countries, turns out to be a rather one nation sided thing. And I got interested in history beyond the borders of Germany, and uh, I got a good teacher in uh, Latin American history, and uh, he attracted me, Hans-Joachim König from Eichstätt, and he attracted me to that field, and I got stuck with Latin American history. And uh, as to Latin American football, that is quite obvious. If you study Latin America in the 20th century, you will hardly get around uh, looking at football as a phenomenon, which is not only culturally grounded, but also politically and economically very, very important. And so that's where I started investigating uh, football in Latin America, too. And I'll ask you both, I, I presume that you were both satisfied by the uh, result of this last World Cup. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, of course. Now, I was kind of hoping for it. Uh, Stefan and I, had a, we went to a, to a meeting at the Volkswagen Stiftung, and I think one of the last things we were asked there was uh, when we gave papers and talks on, on the World Cup, and uh, one of the last things we were asked was who we were actually hoping for, and I, I was, I think, the only one among the four people who were present there who were sort of, who were giving papers, who was strongly in favor of Germany winning or hoping that Germany would do it this time, but Stefan, I think, was more uh, interested in Chile winning, but uh, uh, he, he might be well, able to answer himself better. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the question wasn't uh, whom we were hoping for, Kai, but it was rather whom we thought would win. And I okay. said that I uh, I thought that Chile had very good chances, and they <laughs> did not disappoint me. They did not disappoint me. You know, uh, you know how how uh, uh, tight. Yeah how tight the match was against Brazil and if they had marked the goal in the uh, minute 119 they wouldn't have had to go to the penalties and they would have been in the quarterfinals and obviously our our uh, um, the team to play in the semifinals they, they, they would have given us a harder time than Brazil but I'm very happy about the German win uh, no doubt about that okay Stefan so I was going to ask you haven't gone uh, you haven't gone native so to speak in your in your uh, fan no, interest no. okay okay <laughs> and that and, and that would also be a very very strange thing you know every Latin American is obviously very much with their own nation's team and uh, I'm with mine and everybody accepts that but many many people from Latin America from Brazil Chile and so on where I have many friends uh, have given me feedback and they congratulated me on the win of the German team and they said that people in Chile for example were celebrating with fireworks that the German team had won the final which really impressed me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, let's turn to the book. And uh, in this volume of essays, so you two are the editors of this collection of essays, and, uh, and this came out of an academic conference held uh, last year in 2013 in Zurich. And the conference was hosted by FIFA, and this publication, the volume, was supported by FIFA. And uh, so as you both know, FIFA is the subject of, of much criticism, including from, from scholars of football. And so mm -hmm. I'll ask you to start how your work 
with FIFA went in, in producing this volume? Well, we first tried to get um, funders both in the United Kingdom and in Germany to um, pay for a conference of this type. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, given that we were covering 21 World Cups, sorry, 19 World Cups, we have 21 contributions, um, and we, were, we wanted to have experts either from the country that hosted the conference to give a paper or experts on those countries. So we would have a very pretty international audience, which would make this a, quite an expensive conference to, to, to hold. And so we, were, we had a hard time, you know, getting the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft or the British Academy to, um, to fund this. And our applications for funding were unsuccessful. And for my 74 book, I had worked in the FIFA archives and I had just mentioned it to the archivist that we were planning such a conference. And at some point when we had I'd already sort of thought, I think it was November 2012, that the whole thing was pretty much dead and we wouldn't be able to have that conference and obviously not a book in the aftermath. I got an email from somebody at FIFA who had found out about the conference and had said, well, is that conference going to happen? And, and, and I sort of picked up the phone and uh, called them up and um, asked them whether, uh, well, basically I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't write an email, maybe I should talk to this person uh, on the phone. And uh, it turns out that um, Alexander Koch, who we also thank um, in the uh, preface to the to the volume, um, was very very interested, and so we ran the proposal by him, and he's, eventually um, FIFA said actually we could fund this, and uh, we we then um, they we could fund this and we could hold this at, at um, FIFA headquarters in Zurich, and. We, we obviously were, we were absolutely clear that um, this, that this meant uh, that there might possibly be dangers uh, um, related to this in terms of, you know, um, are we, are we going to be used by FIFA? To what extent are we sort of fig leaf perhaps, yeah, for FIFA, which is always, which always gets um, in the news in a sort of negative sense. But in many ways, um, uh, our, our fears uh, seemed uh, unjustified in the sense that there was never any sort of attempt at controlling what we were, uh, whom we were inviting. We invited scholars who were quite critical of FIFA. If you, can, if you look at the volume, um, for instance, David Goldblatt is in it, who's very, very critical of FIFA. Alan Tomlinson has written very, very critical uh, books on FIFA. Chris Boltzmann has written on South Africa in a very, very critical fashion. So um, we were quite impressed by how uh, open FIFA was to, you know, to sponsor the conference, invite um, these speakers, and uh, then also in facilitating the publication. And there was never any attempt to interfere with um, the conference in terms of, you know, who was speaking, what they were saying, um, and uh, also with um, the um, and with and with the publication. Um, FIFA helped with uh, editing the volume, with copy editing the volume, because we had to get it out very, very quickly. Obviously, the conference was in April uh, 2013, and I think the deadline for the 
uh, contributions was July, August um, 2013, so just a few months later, and we hadn't had FIFA copy editing helping us with, you know, making the text ready for publication also because neither of us is a native speaker, which makes it perhaps a bit, you know, native English speaker, which makes it even, even harder. If we hadn't had FIFA copy editing, we would not have been able to get this out in time um, for the World Cup. And... Uh, not one, um, not once was there an attempt, uh, um, sort of, to interfere or to. That smartly, people never try to do this, and I don't know. Uh, you, you wanna? I found it. Um, how would I, how would I say this? Was it a, was it a prize worth paying having FIFA's name attached to it? I think it was because, in the end, uh, the end result sort of um, suggests that it was actually a, a very. FIFA was very generous. Yeah, I mean, you can say they have so much money, maybe <laughs> it was, it's easy for them to be generous. But um, I think that's that's perhaps what, what what I can say about this. Yeah, I, I would fully I, I would fully uh, um, underwrite what what Kai has just said. I was uh, actually impressed by openness of of the people at FIFA because obviously one shouldn't forget FIFA is not only Blatter or the upper echelon of the uh, presidential board but rather many people who also have an interest in in showing that uh, the association has has an interest in in scholarly research has also an interest in in a critical discussion of FIFA's history and uh, I was impressed by that, and and I thought that you know there are obviously more sides to FIFA than uh, we usually get uh, to know from the press. Uh, Kai, you had mentioned that uh, David Goldblatt was uh, a participant at the conference, and uh, and he wrote one of the uh, one of the opening essays for the book, and and in that essay, in the early pages of the essay, he has this interesting phrase that that the history of the World Cup uh, must be written um, as an emotional history. And uh, so can you talk about this idea of how uh, it shapes our understanding of the history of the World Cup to pay attention to not just politics and economics, but also to emotions? I mean, uh, that is a, a line of uh, research which has, has recently opened up in, in historiography. It has... Uh, become um, a broader field of, of inquiry, um, the emotional history, and uh, I always thought from the very beginning that uh, that uh, will go a long way in explaining the attraction and also uh, the high feelings that go along with the sport. And so I think this is a very um, a very promising field of research. Although, of course, as a historian, one is always a little um uh what is it uptight or a little uh, reluctant in in going too much into the psychological uh, field of uh, um, study uh, if you talk about emotions emotional history then uh, of course how will you measure that how can you um, how can you find out about what is going on uh, in the people in the spectators in the players and so on but uh, what you can do is of course uh, uh, an analysis of the discourse 
discourse around the event of the of the media of the journalists of the players in their interviews and also of the people being interviewed so that would be uh, i think a very promising approach not only for the most recent uh, world cups but also for the uh, uh, older ones because uh, what is very um, astonishing is that already in the very at the very beginning we find that uh, football already in 1930 in Uruguay uh, had the masses, or really caught the masses, that there were massive amounts of people who were go to the to the matches especially uh, when the home team played and so football was especially strong in in um, stirring up national emotions you know the emotions of nationality which are hardly ever stirred up in, in such a manner as as when it comes to to uh, events like the world cup or other uh, uh, plays by matches by by national teams. So I think that there's, uh, uh, especially in that regard, as to football and national identity, quite a bit that still needs to be researched. And uh, maybe uh, Dave Goldblatt is going that way right now. But uh, obviously we talked about that during the conference and we were all agreed that this would be a promising field of how to approach uh, the history of football from a new angle. Stefan, let me ask you, uh, following up on that, because you wrote the essay on the 1930 World Cup in, in Uruguay. So today when we see images of, of nationalism or, or, how do you say it, nationalist emotion among uh, World Cup fans, you, you typically see someone with their face painted in the colors of the national flag. Uh, they're wearing the colors of the flag. They're wearing the uh, the shirt of the national team. Uh, looking back at 1930, and and you mentioned that you have this already in 1930, this this sense of of nationalism and nationalist emotion. How was that expressed? How was that demonstrated in 1930? Yeah, well, it, that was expressed differently, of course. Uh, people wouldn't run around with uh, the colors of the flag in their faces, but. Uh, emotions were uh, no less very strong, especially when it came to the games between the the immediate neighbors. You know, this derby kind of games between Uruguay and Argentina. Uh, those were highly charged with nationalist feelings, and uh, people would do what the more uh, violent fans still do today. They would beat up each other, and uh, they would uh, cheer uh, nasty things to to uh, the antagonists. And uh, so th that was the one thing how it was expressed. But the other thing was also using the use made of, of the event by uh, the governments. And, uh, uh, for example, the Uruguayan government used uh, the fact that they were the very first to uh, present what was to become a, a big tradition. Nobody knew it in 1930 that this was going to happen. It was still kind of a... Of a uh, exploratory uh, uh, championship, but uh, when uh, still the Uruguayan government made sure to point out how um, um, how highly developed the country already was and how how much it was uh, ahead of even some of the European countries, and uh, it. Uh, deducted from there the fact that Latin America and Uruguay especially would have a great future, would become uh, world leaders due to their role in football. So this is where you can see that, that the two dimensions, you know, the popular 
uh, emotion of of nation, uh, national, or uh, we might also say patriotism, and uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, governmental use of uh, employing football to present themselves to the world, also to attract tourists. That was quite a, a very modern way of of uh, uh, of, of uh, promoting the event. In 1930, uh, you can see that these two dimensions are already there in the very in the very beginning, and uh, it struck me that uh, you can see these um, strains already so early. And that was something I noticed throughout uh, throughout all of the essays is is this tension between uh, the South American and the European countries. Yes, that that is obviously uh, uh, pretty strong, and um, it is uh, it was strong again this year when we followed the World Cup, and how much the Latin American countries were proud of their achievements of of uh, gaining ground or, or getting ahead of the European teams, and of course in a in a uh, continent which is usually known for nothing but their catastrophes football is one of the very few export uh, factors or export products so to say which is positively uh, connoted and uh, as such um, football uh, has a very important role especially when it comes to presenting Latin America or presenting one country uh, to the world and um, we noticed that in 2014 uh, we could have seen that or we, we have seen that already in 1930 in, in, in the many World Cups for Latin American teams it's always not only uh, being uh, the rivals of uh, uh, the other teams in general but there's always this rivalry against the European masters, so to say, the, or the former teachers who once brought football to, to the continent. And uh, um, there's always this dimension too. And uh, only in the second line comes the rivalry um, against uh, the neighboring countries. And this is why it uh, surprised me so much to receive so many uh, um, Congratulations to uh, the German victory for this year's World Cup. I, my idea had been that they, uh, the Latins, would rather uh, keep their fingers crossed for Argentina, you know, in this game. But that was obviously not the case. So one other theme that I noticed in, in the essay on uh, Uruguay 1930 uh, is the desire to build state-of-the-art stadiums as, as a sign of progress. And this is opposed to concerns within the host country about the expense of those stadiums. So this is something that is present in in nearly all of the tournaments, correct? Yeah, I mean it's always um, it's always obviously national leads, national governments who um, use football to enhance identification, national identification, and. Uh, you know, having a World Cup or having such a spectacle—that's that's an occasion to do this. The Olympics, I think, is not is not very very different in that respect, and uh, and that comes with uh, with expenditure that cannot be um, spent on uh, other perhaps very basic amenities like we had in Brazil with regards to public transport, education, healthcare. Um, and that also then obviously in this in this first instance led uh, to the protests um, that we see not so much with regards to to the World Cup, but a year before at at, at the Confed Cup. And um, I um, I think that that's something that that probably needs to be 
we thought for the future in the sense that um, if the state cannot provide the bare essential, the bare minimum, then um, it's going to be increasingly hard for them to sell, you know, the building of state, in particular white elephants like we have in Brasilia or that or Manaus, um, where we don't have first division teams that would use the stadium, or we had similar uh, incidences uh, in South Africa, 2010. World Cups always are costly. That is to say, um, uh, the um, if you the, the balance sheet will never sort of <laughs> will never turn out to be um, uh, turn out to be positive for the host country. I think it's a myth to suggest that. Um, uh, World Cups uh, uh, start up the economy or give a boost to the economy. The reality is that I think um, I think studies by um, Shimansky and others have, have shown this very very clearly. Menik was also at our conference. Uh, Wolfgang Menik um, that um, uh, World Cups uh, never come cheaply and they do not really help um, the economy and therefore um, uh, uh, governments will have to um, you know um, make it clear to their publications that this is not there's, 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 the World Cup is not a free lunch you know. <laughs> May I may, may I add a word to yeah, that? Yeah. Um, ju just uh, you know, the, of course, the um, the Brazilian um, program of building stadiums has come under so much fire and under so much uh, criticism, and there are obviously good reasons for criticism. But I think what is uh, often forgotten is the fact that Brazil, ever since the late 19th century, now has been trying to. Uh, 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 give infrastructure from the centers at the coast, that is to say Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, and of course in former times also Salvador de Bahia, to the regions which, which are not, uh, uh, which are far off. And uh, as we all know, Brazil is a, is a continent in itself. Uh, because of its size and so the idea of using these events of using the big sports events in order to um, um, give a push to this policy of infrastructure development uh, is not so far-fetched as uh, some European critics might think. Of course, here in Europe, we are we are very much uh, uh, accustomed to having a, a very good railroad and road system, and uh, you can go anywhere you want in a very short time. But not so in 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 Brazil, where regions like the Amazon or uh, um, or Fortaleza or, or what have you are still very much underdeveloped and and uh, where uh, money needs to uh, go to these um, poorer sections of the country in order for them to uh, to make uh, a progress. So the idea of the government to uh, decentralize the cup and to actually have games there was not so far fetched, and 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 I think it was. It, there were good intentions behind that because one of the major problems of Latin American polities, not only in Brazil, but you can take that to Argentina or you can take that to Chile or to Colombia or what have you, is that uh, politics for, for historical reasons have always been centered on the capitals, which are growing by leaps and bounds, you know, in countries such as Argentina or, or Colombia, it's even worse because you only, or especially Chile, where you only have this one big city which is growing and growing and growing and attracting everything and then the rest is simply forgotten and of course that creates many many problems for the other uh, parts of the country 
So we have to to look at this uh, idea of of building the stadiums in this larger context of um, of developing uh, ideas. Of course, what has to be criticized is the fact that the, that the many infrastructural projects, which were also part of the planning, would not or were not completed, and uh, that much of the money which was uh, intended to be spent on that finally ended up in uh, some nebulous, corrupt veins. And this is obviously a, a very big problem which needs to be criticized. But the idea itself, and so I, I wouldn't say that those are all white elephants, especially not in Brasilia. Brasilia has a very good plan of how to use uh, the stadium after the event. Of course, they do not have a, a, a first league uh, football team, but uh, they. this is a growing city and uh, uh, there are many uh, events like uh, rock concerts and, and so on and other sports events which will be staged there in the future. It is different in Manaus, it is different in, in Fortaleza, of course, but as I said, you look at the broader picture, take into account the intentions of the government, and then you can go on to criticize what really has to be criticized. But could you not have built just, I mean, that's just to, to add on to this. I mean, given that it's the, it's the Brazilian taxpayer that, that carries, the, carries the can for, um, for this expenditure, could you not have built the infrastructure without the stadia? I mean, could you not have spent um, the same amount of money on, uh, on this build, just by building the infrastructure without having a World Cup? That, that I find... Difficult. Yeah, well, you, th thank you for that critical question, but it was obviously uh, also a big interest in the in the states involved in uh, Amazonia or also in the uh, uh, federal district to get this uh, games you know this is also a prestige factor it's all uh, politics is, uh, has always been about Parliament's uh, census and and uh, this has always been uh, has also been a very important factor in the game. So you know you cannot only judge it all from from the rational standpoint, as you already said. You know, giving or applying for a World Cup by countries such as Russia or Qatar. Of course, you can you you can uh, criticize that and and, and uh, from a from a European point of view. But then, where would you end up? You would end up with having your World Cups only in France, England, or Germany or Spain, for that matter. You couldn't even go to Italy because there the fans are too brutal. And and then you know where, where do you end up? You only have the the World Cups here in the European countries, which do already hold uh, the the infrastructure. And you can't go anywhere else. But if if you really want FIFA to be, and, and this is part of, of the uh, fascinating aspect of the association, that it always pretended to be uh, really a global uh, association. And that already from 1904 on. So this is a very uh, long history. And they lived up to their claim by broadening and broadening their membership and opening themselves up to to uh, allowing other continents also to to hold this big event, you know. And if you do that, if you really want that, if you really want globalization and internationalization, it doesn't come without a price. And part of the price to be paid is to play according to the rules of the countries that are uh, uh, joining you and that are that are uh, trying to compete with you. So I guess you know, uh, coming back to these to the questions, couldn't they have built the infrastructure without building the stadium? Of course they could, but would they have done so? No, they wouldn't, because then other 
projects would would have been at the fore, and there would have been many political reasons for postponing that. So you know, at, at times, you know, look, look at the German um, uh, uh, example, which you studied so well, Kai, in your in your uh, uh, in your own uh, works on the 1972 Olympics. Of course, you know, one could say, did it need the Olympics to make Munich modern? Couldn't they have just uh, done that with without uh, uh, the Olympics of course they could have but they didn't because it needs these kind of events in order to to gain this uh, uh, what you call it you know this boost uh, in order to make uh, development happen and I think that's what what uh, the governments of Lula and Jilma uh, had hoped for it didn't happen for different reasons which need to be criticized but the idea in itself has not to be condemned from the outset so you do so moving back into history you you break the essays into into blocks of tournaments or, or periods and I want to ask about the uh, the periodization you set forth in in the book um, after after looking at the the initial tournaments in the 1930s you then group the four tournaments from from 1950 to 1962 in a section that you title Between Tradition and Modernity. So can you talk about these, uh, uh, the characteristics of these four World Cups in this, in this middle period as being caught between the past and the modern? Well, the grouping to me seemed, when, when, I, when, when you look at these World Cups, you think uh, to, um, to, to a great deal, they, ha- they, they help traditional societies um, to move into um, modernity, um, would say that's clearly the case for 1950 yeah and for 1962 or they move within the kind of tension between um, modernity and idyll such as the 1958 world cup in um, in sweden and uh, given that for instance television yeah wasn't really um, that important until uh, 1966 that suggests to me for instance that uh, the the world cups between 1950 and 1962 uh, also uh, sort of represent a kind of like uh, you know somewhat looking back to the 30s um, as well as um, a sort of looking um, looking forward, use, using the World Cup to modernize um, the, the German World Cup. Obviously, in 1954 uh, is a special case because of the tension with the past and the sort of lost and the lost war. Um, so um, I think you can probably take these um, uh, periodizations apart uh, uh, in, in, in some ways, but in, in other ways, I think they make um, they make uh, quite a lot of sense. In particular, the tension between traditional and modernity as represented in, in 1958 as well as in um, in 1950 in Brazil uh, and the way it is being sort of uh, received particularly the Maracanazo um, the relatively small event that the World Cup is in Chile in 1962 if you, if you look at it on, on the world stage suggests to me that these World Cups were um, uh, different, say, from the pre-war World Cups, where I think there's a clear sort of time break between, obviously, uh, 38 and, um, and, uh, and and 50. So that suggested to me that, you know, also because of the way the 50, uh, 34 was used um, for political means 38 was used uh, equally or was equally in a sort of charge took place in a charged political atmosphere to, to look at those separately whereas the ones that follow after 
in terms of the periodization seem to me preparing for the what I call the sort of hyper commodification of the World Cup um, that was to come in in the last section, multiculturalism and commercialization. That's why I entitled it Before the Gold Rush. There's a famous article by Alan Tomlinson on 74 as being the last World Cup um, before the, the Gold Rush. I sort of modified it. So we modified this slightly by taking 82 as part of this as well. Periodizations are what they are, and um, I suppose they have strengths and they have weaknesses. But I thought, um, in the end, what we suggested is defensible, Bruce. I, I think I, I think there are there are good reasons for for uh, saying that and Kaya's always already singled out most of them. But let me add just one point because if you look at the media coverage we we have in the uh, in this period, obviously radio is a very very strong uh, medium, uh, which um, does reach uh, regions of the countries which had formerly uh, not taken part in the. Um, in the media hype around the the, uh, the 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 tournament, and which now could uh, take part. That is to say, Maracanas, the Maracanazo of of 1950 was not only an event which stayed in Rio de Janeiro, but was also felt live and at the same moment in most of Brazil. And and this this is the modern aspect of it, but. But then, if you look, as Kai already said, at 1958, the stadiums, the, the uh, these little uh, village kind of matches that that you would uh, see, that is obviously still a, a kind of a traditional element in it, and and so this is really an in-between time, uh, which uh, one can see there. I think the, the the problem, the general problem that you have when you organize such a book, and also. Don't forget, we had to do this um, very, very quickly. Um, yeah. That is, um, is to um, is to uh, think about possible ways of. Obviously, you want to keep the chronology. Yeah, and because we wanted. I mean, one of the main ideas was you know to have scholarly articles on each World Cup. Um, if you read David Goldblatt, he suggests a different type of structure. Yeah. So, but at, this, at the same time, we couldn't sort of say, okay, we, Goldblatt just uh, sets the agenda for us. So, I think uh, Goldblatt has an important break in '82. He says '82. If you look at the title of the article by Albrecht Sonntag, France '98, a watershed World Cup. So, we should have we should have another stru another structure there. So, the I think the um, so we, the, this is the, this was tentative. You know, in yeah. a way, and the organization, the organization of the World Cups is tentative. And so, so what, what this book, in a way, is about is is you know how how do these national contexts um, sort of interact with this global phenomenon, and how does this global phenomenon expand? I mean, there's certainly I, I see this book as a kind of stepping stone towards a sort of further towards a history of football in the 20th century, like David Goldblatt has written one. But could, you can yeah. think about writing. Uh, uh, um, you can think about writing another one. Um, you know, there could there would have been more space perhaps to write about FIFA. There would have been more space to write about globalization. There should have been perhaps an article on globalization, yeah, and a, and a further one on FIFA that looks more at the later developments of FIFA as well. So, um, uh, well, let me ask this question. So, sticking with periodization and and key turning point uh, uh, World Cups or watershed World Cups, is there a World Cup or, or multiple tournaments where you look at it and you say 
that was not a watershed. We <laughs> we can't look at that tournament as being. We don't see anything really significant in terms of being a turning point in the history of World Cups. Yes, we see trends continuing from from previous tournaments, uh, but there's there's not anything extraordinary in terms of the history of the tournament. Yes, I, I could I, I, I could uh, say, you know, 1934, 1938 were not that outstanding, I would guess. And uh, I would say 1930 and 1950, they were very important in terms of uh, 1934 being the first one. 1950, of course, being the first one after the after uh, the Second World War, when the tradition was taken up again, then you have 54 and 58, 62 and 66, which are also, you know, more in this transitive mode that we've been just just been talking about. And and then uh, as you come to the 70s, of course, there is, a, a, I would say, a major rise. And then, as Kai has already pointed out, uh, with, with the media coverage in the 70s and 80s and then with the commercialization in the 90s, I would say that uh, 74 in uh, um, uh, because of the or 70 already because of the TV coverage, and then 1990 again because of the commodification of the sport, uh, do become new new stepping stones. And uh, again, 94, 98, 2002. Um, perhaps 2002 then again because of its of its uh, uh, ray um, of, of of the World Cup going abroad or going to Asia for the first time that is also uh, a major a major turning point a major watershed I would say and as, as is 2010 in in um, South Africa. So that would be my evaluation, but of course that depends on on the perspective, and that's also what the fun that history writing <laughs> is always about. You can discuss hours and hours about different viewpoints, and uh, we did that. And uh, as I said at the opening, FIFA left us the freedom to do so, and uh, uh, that was the good thing about the conference, and it's also the good thing about the volume which we now have at hand. So your book doesn't have a chapter on uh, Brazil 2014, but I want to ask you both, knowing that you uh, you paid close attention to this tournament, what what themes or issues from from previous World Cups stood out most to you? Now having participated in this conference, having put these uh, these essays together in in a volume, uh, what really stood out as you watched this year's tournament? What stood out, you know, I, I would say the first thing is the quality of the football. Uh, as compared to other World Cups, number of goals scored that was something w which really surprised me in a in a positive manner. I hadn't thought that possible. I thought that would rather be uh, more more of the boring games, and uh, so so that that was very good. Also, the quality of the Latin American teams impressed me, and and I was very happy about that. Also, what it stirred up in the Latin American countries in terms of of happiness and, and joy. And uh, also what stood out to me and what I somehow predicted also in, at this event at the Volkswagen Stiftung was that the uh, big uh, protests did not uh, show up again during the, during the World Cup. I had uh, uh, said that uh, that was my prediction because I thought that during the World Cup, Brazilians 
would not or the protesters would not be able to to mobilize the same kind of dissatisfaction and that was uh, actually true um and uh, and i thought again it showed how football for the moment that it is being played can uh, cover up deep divisions and structural problems of a society like in the Brazilian case now. And of course, these problems have not been created by the Soccer World Cup and um, they they couldn't have been solved by the World Cup neither, but are rather long-range problems of now um, about almost 200 years of independent Brazil and uh, which need to be overcome by uh, long-range measures of the Brazilian governments in the future. But then another point which which also struck me uh, as as being a very um, new was uh, this kind of open voice dissatisfaction with uh, FIFA of course uh, having now become a real um, yeah the bad guy in the whole in the whole game and uh, uh, that has all also struck me and I was asking myself uh, again and again um, what is happening there and, and uh, is it is it really such a black and white picture which we sometimes get presented and shouldn't we be a little bit more critical about that so the, those are the factors that most struck me and uh, of course also uh, the the very idea that, that sport and politics are so closely uh, interrelated is something which uh, is is more or less a, a very broad um a very broad uh, element of continuity in the history of the World Cups. Yeah, I think equally the the, the quality of the football played, um, the increasingly open criticism of FIFA in the stadia, also the you know the the, the booing of uh, Gilma um, as well as of um, Blatter, um, the, the kind of open. Criticism. I think that we didn't have that when we didn't have that in in, in South Africa. Um, it struck me as how would I say this? Um, on, as I said, I think what, what what struck me particularly about it is is to what extent um, it's a spectacle that is really sort of organized, sanitized, um, made to look pleasant for the eye. You know, the the camera angles that we got of the fans that wore their um, uh, that, that wore their whatever the flags on their on their cheeks and and the funny costumes. How all of this has, has become a sort of a, a mega party, a, a, a mega event, and um, that in some ways um, arouses our emotions, makes us participate, draws us in emotionally. But um, uh, equally, um, it happens and it sort of ends after three weeks and we miss it for a few days and we watch, I mean, I don't know, I watched probably 64 of the 64 games. And, um, but then we equally forget about it as well and we move on to something different. And I think it struck me, well, what struck me in particular is the kind of, as I said, the kind of sort of emotions that football is able to create or that the kind of way it is presented when you're not in the stadium, when you just watch it on the, on, on the television, the spectacle um, 
to what extent it sort of arouses our emotions and lets us partake in this global festival in this global party but which then like a caravan that you know comes into town leaves town um and uh, um leaves us uh, i wouldn't say sort of slightly sober or um disappointed but um yeah which which doesn't have anything for us to um to hold on to for instance i i think like for instance that fourth world can win in some ways oh this is very early to say that but in some ways it didn't possess the kind of emotional qualities that perhaps other world cups or world cup wins possessed um uh, uh for germany but maybe maybe sorry maybe that's just over the top and, and and exaggerated no that's actually something that i i was interested in hearing about is how this uh or even comparing it to when germany hosted uh the world cup in 2006 and and won third place uh was you know how would you compare the reaction uh of germans this year as opposed to 8 years ago i think stefan is better a place because he lives in Germany, so he knows a bit more <laughs> what's been going on. Well, you know, uh, uh, Kai is right in that sense that uh, uh, 2006, it was all new when, when we first had this kind of overboarding uh, happiness and joy and, and, and national pride going on. Now in 2010, it was more or less a repetition, but but a mighty one for that. Uh, I mean, the the uh, especially the um, the welcome that the populace gave to the to the team here in Berlin a few days ago was really impressive, and people came from all over Germany to to take part in that. And and of course, uh, there's also uh, always this uh, danger, I would say, of some people getting too proud of of. Uh, that win and and of getting too nationalistic about it and uh, so uh, one might say there there are also some caveats about about it but in the in the long run or on the whole i would say people were pretty much relaxed and were were very happy and uh, if i look at my children they have now for the first time lived through their first world cup triumph and i told them about the way i felt when i was a kid you know in 90 and or in 74 especially uh, so it's all a, a long tradition which goes into into family history but uh, talking about the emotional side what most struck me in during this world cup was uh, the week when i was in ecuador in quito and i was there when ecuador played that their third and last game against France, which uh, they tied 0-0, but that wasn't enough for them, and they had to leave the tournament. And then I heard this radio reporter saying, um, you know, I was in a taxi then, and I heard this radio reporter saying, well, uh, now the guys are all there, out there on the field, and they are crying, but they are crying like men. So that that was what really what really struck me and what I will never forget about this tournament. <laughs> uh, well, okay. we're almost out of time. I want to ask. Uh, uh, so you have essays in in the book about all of the World Cups of the past, but I imagine in in the conference uh, that you talked about the World Cups of the future, uh, uh, the World Cup that's scheduled to take place in Russia and uh, Qatar, and and I'll just ask if anything stood out from your discussions. Uh, at your conference about uh, looking ahead to Russia and Qatar? 
I think what stood out um, in the discussions is, of course, you know, what kind of future um, FIFA has and what kind of reforms FIFA should um, undergo if possible. And um, we had, um, you know, lots of discussions uh, at the conference, you know, with David Goldblatt, for instance, and Alan Tomlinson and others who have ideas on how to possibly reform FIFA and, um, you know, for instance, by, um, you know, turning, you know, making FIFA truly democratic um, by, uh, for instance, doing things that the IOC has done, which is uh, give a sort of age limitation to how long, you know, functionaries can serve, but all of that um, has already um, been uh, rebutted at the, at, the, at the FIFA Congress in, in Brazil, so that's not going to happen, that's not going to come in, you know, the, 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 the time that can be served and in, in FIFA um, in uh, sort of in FIFA offices that there should be a, lim a time limitation to this. Um, um, I think um, I don't know. I'm I'm really worried about what's going to happen to the World Cup in in, in the future. I, I I mean I don't know whether you saw that, but uh, today German politicians were already discussing. You see how politicized the World Cup is, whether. 2018 uh, should be taken, whether the World Cup should be taken away from Russia as a kind of um, a move because the European Union and the Americans can't really agree on sanctions against Putin's Russia, that whether maybe we take the World Cup away. It's obviously not in their hand to take the World Cup away. It would be, would be, um, would be FIFA, and FIFA obviously says that football stands above politics and therefore it wouldn't, it wouldn't act. Um, I don't know. I um, I'm really I'm really really skeptical about the future. I think one that's one of the things that comes out of uh, comes out of 2014, even despite the German win, and because that you know I find it okay, enjoy that. But but then there are other things that I, where I see FIFA, I think much more critically than I saw it um, before. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I only hope that there are um, voices within FIFA that are willing to address and obviously the, the people we met at FIFA we, we we found them very interested in what we had to say and um, in these kind of discussions and I hope that these voices will prevail and and hopefully um, you know there'll be a rethink about you know where future World Cups go or perhaps also you know where the ones that have already been awarded whether they should stay where they actually are. Yes, uh, of course, I, I do remember the, the very heated discussions, actually, that we had, uh, especially with the journalists who were uh, participating in our event in Zurich last year. And uh, that was a big, that was the big issue. And uh, people were, were concentrating on that. Um, I, much like Kai, I, I'm a historian, so I'm, I'm tend to be reluctant about uh, future prognosis. But uh, I think what uh, the recent past has shown is that uh, there has to be a, a change in the in the politics of the association. And um, I think that this change, uh, or I'm quite optimistic that this change will be coming, uh, because I've seen uh, so many different aspects of FIFA now, the other faces of FIFA than the ones that we're usually presented with in the press. And uh, from there, I'm 
kind of optimistic that there is the will and also the the possibility for an internal change and towards more transparency and uh, towards uh, living up to the promise of the sport. So a difference of opinion there. So I'll ask both of yep. you to finish to finish up. Uh, uh, in in David Goldblatt's essay, he he writes at the end of the uh, the one World Cup of the past, the one match that he wishes he could have uh, he could attend if he could travel through time. So I'll ask you both uh, which World Cup of the past, maybe even uh, a particular match, do you wish you could attend personally? So Kai, do you have a yeah, 50, uh, the 54 final. I would have liked to attend this. You know, Germany, Hungary. I would have liked to see this. Um, yeah, and because of because of what it what it then meant in terms of the German politics of the past, the sort of sense of uh, rebirth. I would have enjoyed to experience the weeks and the the euphoria that followed. Mm-hmm. And Stefan. Yeah, in my case, it would have been the Maracanazo. Actually, I, I would really have loved to be there in, in 1950. Uh, I've known the old Maracana, uh, and I've, I've, uh, I know how, how uh, impressive it can be there, and I can hardly, I, I, I hardly understand how it was that quiet in that very moment, and uh, I, would, I would have liked to be there and to experience that. You've been listening to an interview with Stefan Rinke and Kai Schiller, editors of the volume of essays, The FIFA World Cup, 1930-2010. to Politics, Commerce, Spectacle, and Identities. Published in 2014 by Wallstein. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications, on subjects from philosophy to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.